0: Hi there, friends. Kim Honeycutt here, executive director of ICU Talks, and you are listening in to our podcast. You probably already know that, but I need to say it because I think it sounds so professional and formal to say that you are a part of ICU Talks here. Voices in our final speaker for the September ICU Talks, and the topic was emotional warrior, and warrior is spelled with a semicolon, because this month was about the effects, consequences, and aftermath of suicide. Our final speaker was Heather Bice. I've known Heather for a long time, I've known her family for a long time, and was there when her son lost his life to mental illness. I, I can't believe what she shared on that stage. It couldn't have been better, and I couldn't even post afterwards because I couldn't even talk about it. The only thing I could say after that was Jesus because it was so supernatural. So open your hearts, open your minds, and let the floodgates of the Holy Spirit come in.
1: So, y'all can hear me? My, my beautiful flowing hair isn't interrupting my microphone. All right, that's good. Well, Kim told a beautiful story about coming and running the race, but I'm coming and I'm probably not even bringing running clothes because I have no interest in running <laughs> or anything. So, but I do have an interest in ending mental health stigma and being surrounded by a tribe of people who have a similar experience to mine so we can uh, hold each other up. So even if you don't run, you can come and sit with me and, um, I don't know, we'll check Facebook or whatever it is we do while while runny people run. (laughs) But it is true that uh, three years, ten months, and eight days ago, um, we lost our son to suicide. And I think that... um, we didn't realize that in the midst of the worst trauma of our lives that we'd be discovering further trauma. Because even as I was um, becoming uh, frozen and numb and angry and all the things that you are when you experience a loss like this, I realized that I was already in a familiar place And it was through uh, the gentle kindness of the Lord that um, I began uh, releasing repressed memories of having been molested as a child. And the childhood that I thought uh, was a normal childhood, I realized having um, an alcoholic father, Um, A brother, half-brother that um, sold heroin and a half-sister that was in and out of juvie for prostitution regularly was kind of a chaotic upbringing. And I had become a person who was determined to never, never be weak because weak people are victimized, weak people are taken advantage of. And I determined that I was going to be in control of my circumstances no matter what and I had already developed some very toxic coping mechanisms, things that kept me from feeling pain. And I wasn't doing drugs, and I wasn't drinking, but I had certainly shut myself off from anybody who could potentially hurt me. And people who brought their pain towards me actually made me angry. I was doing all that I could to keep myself from pain, and other people having pain in front of me actually brought something up in me that was irate at them for their weakness and making me feel weak in return. And so having a son that struggled so profoundly with depression was a constant Toxic shame cycle of loving him and wanting to be near him and intimately, deeply caring about his struggle, and conversely, being feeling rejected in this process and feeling angry that there was nothing that I could do about it. And so, in the moments when I could have been the most help to him. I was mired in a very toxic shame that kept me from being open with him and helping him when he needed the most. And I'm not going to say that I'm the reason that he took his life. There is a lot of things that, that happened, but I am going to say that shame blocked us from experiencing the intimacy that we could have been enjoying, the help that I could have given him. And so throughout my grief process, every once in a while, a little random memory would pop up of my son that would make me smile and it was bittersweet. But more often than not, I was getting memories of time that he came to me with deep pain and he needed a mother and he needed someone to identify with him and help him and I was too numb and too shut off and too afraid of pain to be there in the most intimate way possible. And so I went to the place where you go to cry and nobody notices, the shower. I took a lot of showers, spent a lot of time in the shower. And these memories were coming up and I was so filled with such a deep regret and such a deep shame that I couldn't even cry out to the Lord about it. So I hollered out to my son, Spencer. I said, baby, don't you know that you were always loved? In that moment, the strangest thing happened. I felt the audible voice of the Lord like an electric current go through me, and he said, yes, yes. In the same way that I desperately wanted my son and had no way of communicating with him anymore how deeply he was loved, my father was telling his daughter that he wanted me in the same way to know how deeply I was loved. In all my shame and mistakes, and all the, the toxic coping mechanisms that I had built up, I was always loved. But that wasn't really enough. To know that I was loved was really not enough to overcome this deeply toxic shame. It was with a single word that the Lord redeemed this for me. And it changed everything going forward with a concept that I'd known all my life but had never grabbed a hold of. And I'm gonna tell you that word and you're probably gonna like it about as much as I did. But first, what I'm going to do is I'm gonna cowardly hide behind a sweet Bible story. (laughs) Because, (laughs) Because when I'm really truly lost, I find myself in scripture and I identify with the people, and I try to think about what were they possibly thinking? What could this have meant? What kind of context was this in for them? And so I project myself all over it, and I make it all about me. (laughs) And and I find myself uh, identifying with um, people in the Bible. And so I wanna tell you um, about the no good, terrible, horrible day that Peter had. And how deeply I identify with this, and it's um, there'll be a lot of projection, and it'll all be very thinly veiled. So any conclusions you want to draw about who I am and what I'm thinking, you just go ahead. You'll probably be right. But Peter is uh, is with the Lord, in the last um, the last time that he's going to be with Jesus for a very long time. Jesus tells all of his disciples, "I am going to die." And Peter, in his incredibly tone-deaf manner, begins to start an argument up with the disciples over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, right after Jesus says, I'm going to die. Seems like an atypical response. But see, Peter was one of those people who was in the right place at the right time with the right people all the time and just shoving his foot down his mouth, just saying the wrong thing everywhere he went, not really grasping it and opening his mouth and letting everybody know that he wasn't really in tune with what's going on. And so (laughs) he's he's asking Jesus who is gonna be the greatest. And I kind of get the fact, I get why the disciples are having this argument about who's gonna be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven right after Jesus says, everyone, I am about to die. Because Jesus says, like, weird stuff all the time like just a week prior he had a whole group of people and they were talking about healing and he says eat my flesh and like two-thirds of the people that are listening to this conversation get up to find the bathroom and don't come back and (laughs) even the disciples are like that is a hard word and (laughs) we don't understand and then also he said that like three days from This time he's gonna be rebuilding a temple that hasn't even been torn down yet, so who knows, it's Jesus. Jesus says weird things all the time. We don't ever really completely believe what Jesus is saying in any given time. It could be metaphorical, who knows. But I think that the disciples are feeling this big shift because they've all been waiting for this this kingdom because Jesus has been talking for three years about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom and the kingdom and the kingdom and they've been waiting for a king to take over the kingdom and they're thinking about this really small geographical area that they all live in right now and what they really want is they really want the Romans out because the Romans have conquered them and they're occupying their space and so they're picturing um, having complete control over their homeland where the Romans will have, you know, evacuated some beautiful condos that overlook the Mount of Olives, so there'll be some great real estate, and nobody's really going to have to work anymore because, you know, if you get hungry, you just bring some loaves and fishes, and Jesus does this thing, and everybody eats, and it's just really great. And presumably, if you're one of the disciples, you're probably going to be kind of like a big head honcho in this thing. And so Peter is bringing his case to the Lord about, you know, why he should be the head honcho. And he says, he says hey, this whole death thing, don't worry about it. I'm strong. I, I'm, I'm on your team. You're very blessed to have me. I'm going to make sure that this never happens to you. Because clearly I deserve to be mayor of the new kingdom. <laughs> and Jesus does not uh, sound grateful at all. <laughs> Uh, when he says, uh, get thee behind me, Satan. (laughs) Um, So poor Peter is trying again to make his case, and he says, no, no, I will follow you even to death. There is nowhere you can go that I will not be there with you, being your champion, your bodyguard, standing up for all of your ideals. Vote for Peter. (laughs) Um, But Jesus responds with, uh, no, you're actually going to deny me before the morning comes, before the cock crows three times. You're going you're to um, deny me three times. <clears throat> and Peter can't even fathom a world in which he would do this. But unbeknownst to him, Satan has come to Jesus and asked to sift him as wheat. And Jesus knows that Peter's about to enter the darkest period of his life, and there's nothing that Jesus can do about it except pray for him and maybe give him one last thing. So he says, I wanna go pray. I need you to accompany pray, me praying, and you know what? Now's the time. If you guys have some swords, you probably wanna get some swords, and they look around, and they're like, oh, we have two swords, and of course, Peter gets one of them, and I'm sure he's thinking, this is it, I'm gonna have my big moment, you know? I'm gonna prove my worth, and, um, he goes out to the, to the garden, and Jesus says, please watch over me and pray. And, of course, he comes back, and he finds that Peter has slept through this assignment. And so now it's really ramped up. Peter really super, super has something to prove. And so when the people come to arrest Jesus... And he's surrounded by Romans and the high priest and all these important people. Peter takes his sword like a real fisherman and he runs into the fray and he doinks the ear off of some servant who's standing next to the high priest. And Jesus looks at him and he says, Hey, Peter, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And he's arrested and leaves. Well, Peter is about as humiliated as he can possibly be. Everything that he thought he was is going out the window. Jesus is being arrested. This is all circling the drain. And he uh, tries his very best to follow Jesus, but there's these uh, screaming hordes that are mocking Jesus, spitting, throwing things at him. He's being beaten um, to unrecognizable. And while he's standing in a courtyard in horror, watching Jesus be beaten, Somebody comes to him who's really just a nobody, who has no power to do anything, just asks him, is it with Jesus? And he says, no. And by the time he denies him the third time, he's swearing because he's terrified and he doesn't know who he is anymore. And he has no idea what any of this means. And in his shame, um, he looks over and Jesus is looking right at him. And Jesus knows that Peter's about to enter the dark night. But what Peter doesn't know is that (laughs) Satan comes to Jesus, I'm sure, that he was like, hey, while you're busy dying, I'm going to torture that one. But Jesus can tell Satan (laughs) later that he has gone into the garden and he has asked, with Peter on his mind, for for God to download the sin and grief and shame and anxiety and guilt of the entire world on him so that he can take it to the cross so that he can redeem Peter's shame I don't think that that Jesus really had an understanding until it happened of what it means to be separated from the father Because in that moment, he was so grief-stricken and so isolated and so filled with terror that Hebrews says that he had to pray his way to the cross because he was afraid in the garden that he was gonna die on the spot without even making it to the cross from loneliness and grief and pain. So if you've ever been in a night you weren't sure you were going to make it to the morning. Jesus went there first so that there would be no place that you were ever alone in your suffering. And I do think that when Jesus was resurrected, he came back, he spent about a month being amongst the people, visiting the disciples. But he had a very specific personal reward in mind for himself. Something that saw him through the night in the garden, something that saw him through the terror in the courtyard, something that kept him on the cross was this moment that he had been waiting for personally. And he finds himself standing On the shore of the Sea of Galilee and Cana, in the gray pre-dawn hours, looking for a ship. And he sees it coming into shore. And he asks the men on board, hey, did you catch anything? They say, no, it's been a rough night. They don't know that they're talking to Jesus. He says, hey. Hey. Why don't you let down the nets one more time? Okay, weirdo. (laughs) (laughs) So they let the nets down, and they pull them up, and they're filled with fish. And Peter is on that boat because he's broke, and he's a fisherman, and his entire future had circled the drain, and he wasn't who he thought he was. And he needed to make a living. And he was doing the only thing he knew how. So when John says, when he sees this load of fish, John says, oh, it's Jesus, it's the Lord. Peter gets really excited and he throws on his heaviest garment and he jumps in the water. And the Passion Translation says, uh, John says, because he was athletic. But I think is <laughs> because Peter really still had something to prove to himself and to Jesus. And in fact, I kind of wonder if he was like planning on walking on the water to Jesus, but it was like, oh, nuts, I guess I'll swim. <laughs> and so, so Peter makes it to shore. He's breathless and he's wet. And Jesus says, hey, can I make you breakfast? So they sit down together. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter do you burn with love for me? And Peter says, I like you a lot. He used the word phileo, which is like a friend. And he says, then feed my sheep. I think Peter's probably like, is this like that time you told me to get a sword? Because I'm still kind of bitter about that. And then Jesus again asks, hey, do you burn with love for me? And Peter says, I like you a lot. And he says, then feed my sheep. And I'm pretty sure that Peter's response about this time was, you were supposed to feed the sheep. You are giving me a job that you have already told me I'm disqualified to do. You made that abundantly clear. And I'm sure that he was so deeply grieving the life that he thought that he had lost that he isn't even recognizing that the creator of the universe has come back from death and resurrected power to make him breakfast and make sure that he understands how loved he is. But that toxic shame rises up inside him and he has no idea how truly loved he is. So Jesus asks again, he says, hey, Peter, do you like me a lot? And Peter realizes that Jesus is going to meet him however he can in whatever place that Peter's in, whatever way Peter needs to be met. And Peter realizes that he needs to take his cross and that he has already shared in the sufferings of Christ in this long, dark month when he didn't know who he was And now it was time to share in the crucifixion and crucify that flesh and put aside that that dream that was clearly not gonna come to fruition. And he says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I burn with love for you. And Jesus, who had not disqualified him for his previous poor answers or bad behavior or toxic shame, lets him know Peter feed my sheep this is the calling that he placed on him the moment he met him the first time he laid eyes on him he said I will call you Peter and you will be the rock on which I will build my church this was the future that Jesus had in mind for Peter to share with him so Peter realizing that he's not going to be the mayor of Jerusalem is told to go to Jerusalem and wait for some guy who's going to be a helper. Because obviously he's not going to be running point on any of this. So he's waiting for this helper. I'm going to see what this dude is about. And all the disciples are together in an upper room when the helper comes. And the helper is the Holy Spirit. And as they begin to worship through the Spirit, all these people that have come the month before to celebrate Passover... Um, come speaking to all of their different languages and different dialects. They're hearing people worship in their own language and they're wondering how this can be. And they say, how is it that we're all hearing you in our own languages and Peter, the one chosen to share in the glory, shares the gospel of Jesus Christ to these people. And do you know what happened? They were filled with shame because they were the people that were standing in the courtyard demanding that jesus be crucified they were the ones that lined the streets and spit on him and they said what have we done we've called for them for the murder of the messiah what can we do and peter filled with the holy spirit builds the church with the first three thousand people who come to know the power of a resurrected christ through the holy spirit and do you know that they didn't go hungry (laughs) They didn't need Jesus with loaves and fishes. They had the Holy Spirit and each other in community. And Peter was the one to lead them into this. And that leads me to the one word that Jesus gave me. When I'm having this intimate, beautiful moment of communion, when he's telling me how loved I am, and I'm still mired in shame, and I'm just not recognizing the resurrected Lord, is powerfully in my presence with the Holy Spirit. And he breathes this word of life into me. And it was like walking into a sliding glass door. Because he said, repent. And I was like, Lord, that's kind of an old word that we don't use in church anymore because it offends people. But what I didn't realize that the repentance is not so much an act of of admitting your guilt as it is bringing your sacrifice to a living God, knowing that he is going to take this offering and change it from you learning how to, to cope with your toxic skills to thriving through the Holy Spirit. Repentance is what you do to bring redemption to the Redeemer. You have to bring it to him for him to redeem it. So the Lord was telling me, you don't have to carry this anymore. My burden is light. Please bring this toxic shame to me. I can handle it. I know what you've done. And I have a calling for you that you have never been disqualified from. Not in all of your toxic misbehavior, in all of your tone-deaf responses to people crying out in their need. I was never disqualified from living a life in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And the key that he gave to me was repent. And it was beautiful. And it was filled with life.